You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore. Our podcast team is taking a break this week for the holidays, but don't fret, we'll be back next week with all new episodes of our show. In the meantime, this week we're revisiting some of our favorite interviews from 2016. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Tom Wingfield is professor of cyberspace law at the National Defense University and one of the authors of The Talon Manual, an academic study of how international law applies to cyber conflicts and cyber warfare. We interviewed Tom Wingfield back in October on location at the 2016 AUSA meeting in Washington, D.C. We've encountered an increased commingling of kinetic and cyber warfare, and we've heard a number of times that the norms of cyber conflict remain immature. Do you agree with that? 
I agree with it up to a point. The norms of cyber conflict are immature, but the norms of conflict in general are very mature. Most countries agree on most norms almost all of the time, and the trick is in applying those near-universal norms to these new cyber targets and these new cyber problems. You're one of the authors of the Talon Manual, which has acquired the reputation of being one of the more comprehensive and influential sources of the norms in conflict in cyberspace. So how closely does the Talon Manual adhere to other earlier uh, codifications of such international norms, the laws of armed conflict, the law of the sea, the just war tradition? Um, Very closely. The whole point of the Talon Manual was not to write new law, but rather just take the core of existing law that almost all of the countries agreed on and apply it to a new battlefield, just as we had the San Remo manual apply law of armed conflict to naval operations and the air and missile warfare manual do that for that area. It was just meant to take the part we agree on and apply that to cyber operations. Can you, can you take me through the, the process, uh, take us behind the scenes, what went into creating the Talon manual? Well, absolutely. It actually had an unusual beginning. Um, at the very beginning, right after the, the attacks on Estonia in 2007, I was asked to go out to the brand new CCDCOE there and uh, brainstorm some ideas. One of the ideas I had was, wouldn't it be great if we could um, get the 20 smartest law of armed conflict professors in the world together for a few years and have them write the San Remo manual for cyber? And they thought it was a great idea, and they gave us the money, and I recruited 19 other professors, and we did it over three years. I want to ask you about um, NATO's Article 5. Um, Some of the newer members of the Atlantic Alliance have been on the receiving end of cyber offensive operations, and and like you mentioned, we're thinking of Estonia here. Um, Would the alliance be likely to invoke Article 5 over a cyber incident? If it were sufficiently uh, dangerous situation, if it caused sufficient damage, absolutely. We haven't seen anything in the purely cyber realm that would rise to what we call uh, an armed attack, Uh, not even a mere use of force. Um, So we're just at the very early stages. If it ever ever did get to the level of an armed attack, um, a smoking hole in the ground, significant loss of life, then there's not a doubt in my mind that, that Article 5 would be invoked. Um, I want you to, uh, if if you would, to um, talk us through how you see traditional just war theory finding its application in cyberspace. Yes, um, we see the the traditional just war theory informing our policy and how we we choose to uh, use the instruments we have. But in reality, um, the use ad bellum, the the law of conflict management, or the law that governs how we go to war, is actually much, much simpler than that. While we use the seven traditional Thomistic standards to inform our our decision policy-wise, legally, it's only a two-part test, and it's pretty simple. The first part is, is the cyber event... uh, military in its quality. That is, not espionage, not diplomacy, not crime, not politics, not something else, not economics, but is it military in its character, qualitatively? 
once we've decided that, that it is a use of force and uh, military, then we have to make a quantitative description of it to see if it's bad enough in its scale and effects. Those are the two ma- magic words. If qualitatively the scale and effects are serious enough to, to merit a military response. If it's true, we call that an armed attack, and that permits a unilateral response, no Security Council permission, um, uh, and no requirement to use only cyber means to respond to a cyber attack. What about uh, use in bellow, which is you know t- talking about discrimination and proportionality? Um, those four basic rules, uh, discrimination or distinction, uh, necessity, proportionality, and chivalry, um, they apply in cyber the way they apply anywhere else. The standards are very straightforward, and so far not a single country in the world has come forward to say they do not apply in cyberspace. The Russians and Chinese are uncomfortable with uh, the way um, use cogens, known law, um, and customary law applies to cyber. Uh, they would prefer a treaty, but no country has come forward and say those four fundamental tenets of the use in bellow do not apply to cyber operations. U.S. policy with respect to cyber attacks has been to impose costs. That's the phrase they use whenever an actor can be identified. And those costs range from naming and shaming to prosecution of individuals to the imposition of sanctions. Do you have any thoughts on the efficacy of that approach? Do we need less or do we need more or or is it about right? I think we need more. We're feeling our way because it's a new area, but using all of the instruments of national power, I think, is the solution. So at the highest levels, orchestrating what we do in diplomacy with how we use our information when necessary the military instrument and especially economics i'll give you a very quick example of that last one the computer fraud and abuse act was meant was designed for the government to prosecute domestic crimes against the federal government but there's a component in it that gives a private cause of action to individuals and businesses that are victims of those seven federal cyber offenses to actually sue and get damages against the individuals whether they're u.s or or not um, and they only have to meet the lower 51% mere preponderance uh, standard of evidence, much easier than a beyond a reasonable doubt criminal prosecution. We haven't seen much of that, so if I had to make one legal guess for the future, I would see uh, the government using that more, informing corporations and citizens more, that this is another potent weapon in our cyber arsenal. And I think that'd go a long way toward deterrence on the front end and justice on the back end. Do, do you see in terms of, um, you know, I'm thinking of both rattling cages and also kind of, um, uh, you know, testing, testing your neighbors, that sort of thing. You know, um, where do you see things going? Who do you, where are the likely places where, where nations are going to be testing their neighbors, testing their adversaries to see what, wh- where this new type of conflict can go? Well, one surprising area that I see, um, you know, a year ago I would have told you that serious offensive cyber capabilities were the province of a handful of, of cyber powers, and we all know that handful of countries. But over the, the last year, I've come to realize in my travels and in talking with experts that um, many smaller countries are looking for offensive cyber capabilities to serve as an inexpensive deterrent that offense 
can be thought of as a cheaper than a competent system-wide defense. And we may see many medium and even small-sized countries trying to gain an offensive capability in cyberspace one way or another to, to threaten those by whom they feel threatened. And I'd be very surprised if we didn't see some of those countries testing some of those capabilities to calibrate their ability and see what they're able to do. What about attribution? Uh, attribution is tricky and, and often tough uh, when it comes to cyber attacks, but I, I could see it as being a way, uh, because of that, um, you know, nation states perhaps can feel as though they can get away with testing the waters if it's difficult to, to point the finger at them directly. Yes. Uh, Joseph Stalin once said that there were two permissible answers to him. Um, you could either say, yes, sir, or up to a point, sir. So I'd say up to a point in that area. Okay. <laughs> um, when it comes to attribution, there are really two separate ideas that we worry about, at least that lawyers in this area worry about. Um, one is how involved was a state in doing it. We know from international law that if a state is merely providing some financing or some political cover, that's not enough to attribute a non-state actor, hacktivists, terrorists, criminals, um, to their actions to a state against whom our deterrence could work and some other things we could do would work. We also know under international law that if the state is the one picking the targets, Almost all countries agree that that is enough for us to attribute the, the, the actions of non-state actors against uh, to, to a state. And then we have a wide range of tools we can use. There's a big gray area in between those two extremes, and different countries peg state attribution at different levels. The second thing we have to worry about is how certain are we? Um, we can't wait for a beyond a reasonable doubt standard as we would in a courtroom 99% certainty can't happen that fast in an area that we don't control the crime scene um, so that's unrealistic to expect that level of certainty but with mere preponderance uh, 51% that we have in civil cases that's not good enough either if we're going to be doing some serious damage overseas so what we see from the Americans from the British even from NATO are statements that now use the phrase, we have clear and compelling evidence of X, Y, and Z, and therefore we are using force, whether it's cyber or kinetic. And clear and compelling is in between those two. It's about 75% sure. So if we're about 75% sure that a state is doing more than providing mere low-end support, but enough support for attribution, then we check the two boxes and the lawyers say, you may attribute it, and then it goes over to the policy people who have to decide what kind of tools we can use against the adversary. I think that there are two things that are very important, at least in the legal world. One is uh, the need to have an overlap between what the lawyers understand and what operators do. That's why we're hoping if, as the next Talon manual um, 3.0 is going to be an operational law handbook, we hope, um, that would look at these problems not from a law professor's perspective, but rather from the questions and problems that operators have now in this immature field. And we hope to be able to build the legal advice in cyber as the uh, U.S. Army does a great job of doing for the operational law handbook for broad spectrum operations. The second thing, perhaps more interesting, is um, the rise of lethal artificial intelligence. Um, where legally responsible, 
for what those agents do at cyber speed. And if they start causing serious damage or perhaps even loss of life in the, in the not-too-distant future, the last human in the loop, um, the operator, the commander, uh, we would be on the hook for what those things did in our name. So we would have to train them to know the cyber legal outer limits of what they could do so we wouldn't end up as war criminals for releasing them into the wild. It reminds me of you know Asimov's Rules for Robotics. Absolutely. We would start there and then add on the rules we give to frightened 19-year-olds that we send into combat. The same rules would have to be taught and burned into our, our AI agents so that whatever else they did while they're fighting at cyber speed, they, they would not go afield of the rules that define us as us. All right. Thomas Wingfield, thanks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.